0: Hi, there to the journey church family you all doing good Cool, very good to see you and as always it 's a privilege to be with you i 'm going to ask my friend Chris Townley just to pop right up here on the stage if he would. Uh, And uh, I want you to meet Chris Townley if you haven't met him already. And I want to tell you a little bit about a recent transition that we've undertaken in our student ministries department around here. We just, effective April 1st, hired Chris Townley as our new pastor of student ministries. So you should applaud that note. Yes, absolutely. That means that effective April 1st going forward, uh, that he is our point leader of our student ministries department around here, and his wife, his better half, Kate, will be joining him on staff later this summer. We're calling her his right arm, and then together, Chris and Kate, as part of their job description, they're also going to lead our Ethiopia initiative for us, which will be absolutely fantastic. Delighted to have them sitting in both of those seats with us. And you're like, well, what about Caleb? Well, Caleb has transitioned over to a new role that we're calling the middle school coordinator. He'll work alongside Chris, specifically watching over the middle school department. And uh, I also want you to know that high school students starting this week, uh, Wednesday night at 616, a brand new midweek teaching and worship event is being launched for you under Chris's leadership and direction called The 616 right? Makes sense. 616 on Wednesday night. It's an unforgettable time. 616, 616. You won't ever forget when the middle school, uh, high school 616 thing is because it's at, well, 616. You're brilliant people. Wow. It's, a, it's amazing. I'm not so smart, but you are brilliant. And uh, as we like to do around here when we hire a new pastor is commission him or her. And so, uh, in the New Testament, they would have laid hands on Chris in this setting, just like this, but that'd be weird and take way too long. So, if you're comfortable, just extend a hand sort of symbolically over Chris, and let's pray and commission. God in heaven, thank you so much for Chris and for Kate, God, and thank you so much for this unbelievable work that you've done in their lives that brings them to this day. God, uh, All that you've been doing and stirring and inviting and calling and nudging is really testimony to the fact, to the truth, to the reality that you do reign. Those aren't just words that we sing, God, but it's actually a truth about who you are and everything you're about, God. And so I pray your anointing over Chris, I pray your anointing over Kate, God, that as they launch this brand new high school department, brand new high school ministry, the 616, God, that it would be fruitful, that you would multiply it, God, that it would be an immensely effective tool in your hands to reach students who are far from God and grow them up in you, Father. I pray that over the years ahead that many, many, many students would come to know you and that many, many, many students would come to grow up and deepen in their faith because of the work of Chris and Kate and that team, Father. Just pray that you go before them and around them, cover them, God. They're yours and we give them to you, and we pray all of this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and the church said, amen. Give Chris a hand. Good job. Way to go. Way to go. Thanks. Good job. I want us to talk today about another one of the traits of becoming a spiritual champion, and we're continuing in this series aptly titled Becoming Spiritual Champions. And let's look at this principle together that we're going to unpack today. It looks like this. Spiritual champions possess a biblical worldview that shapes their decision-making process because they accept scriptural principles as true and significant. If we ever hope to become spiritual champions, we must hold to a worldview that is rooted and that is founded on scriptural principles. It's absolutely essential. We will never be a spiritual champion if we don't have a biblical worldview. Some of you are asking the question right now, what the heck is a worldview? Well, a couple of definitions. Someone defined it this way, first of all. Worldview is any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. It's this overarching approach to understanding someone else to find a worldview like this. A worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It is an interpretive framework through which or by which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. And we need help making sense of the data of life in the world, don't we? We just do. The world that we're living in today, there is just flat, crazy stuff happening around us all the time. And we have a very difficult time putting handles on it, don't we? We need help. We need a framework. We need a context through which to view all of that, and a worldview provides that for us. I want you to think with me for a moment, actually for the rest of the moments we have together, that this worldview thing is just like a pair of glasses that you would wear. Glasses that you wear that you actually don't take off. They're sort of welded to your head. Your worldview are the glasses that you put on to help you see reality clearly. They help you interpret what reality is. Now, if you choose the right set of worldview glasses, you see everything quite vividly, right? These glasses I'm wearing right now, they help me see you very vividly. If I take these off, I see about the first two rows and the rest of you just look like a big mud ball out there, just sort of all swirled together. I can't see past the first two rows without these on. They help me interpret reality. They help me capture reality vividly, as a matter of fact. They help me live in sync and behave in sync with the real world. I can see what's going on in this room because I have these glasses on when we wear the correct set of worldview glasses, it's just the same deal. A set of worldview glasses that's founded and rooted on God's scriptural principles helps us see what's going on around us through the lenses of God's truth, God's principles, not just some willy-nilly thing that we make up and grab out of the sky, but these principles that are rooted and founded in God himself. I have myself uh, just two pairs of glasses, Uh, this pair, and then I have a pair of prescription sunglasses that I also wear that help me see I quite like my sunglasses but I was like well I I need more sunglasses than just what I have and so I thought who has a whole bunch of sunglasses that I know and so I went out to my wife's car and uh, I rummaged through the center console of my wife's car and uh, she has a large center console as you can see Uh, it doesn't hold anything though but sunglasses and uh, so at this moment, the center console of my wife's car is completely empty, and she has, I lost track of how many pairs of sunglasses she has. There's a lot. I want to put on a few of them for you so you can see some of Dana's shade. How about these ones? Mm. I'm not sure where she wears these two. There's sort of some bling on the side of these ones, right? And then uh, there was this other pair. Oh, yeah, these are pretty cool, too. I particularly am a fan of these. Mm-hmm yeah about that and then i was like whoa she has actually a case to put her if these were my sunglasses they would all be in a case because i'm quite uptight but she has this one pair that are actually in a case i'm gonna step right on those and then i'm gonna be blind and so i was like well what could possibly be in that case look at these that dana has Hmm. Uh, I didn't know my wife was a shooter I think these are shooting glasses she wears out to the handgun range <laughs> right before she takes aim at me, right? <laughs> Stunts like this. I don't let her wear these very often because I'm afraid of what the single men will do to her. These are something, aren't they? Oh, oh. This worldview thing is just like a pair of glasses. And uh, I don't have my good glasses on, my prescription glasses on, and so I see these first two rows and the rest of you look like yellow mud. You're just a, a big yellow blob out there. And our worldview is just the same way. If we wear the wrong pair of worldview glasses, all of the world then is tainted by the color of the lens that you're wearing. Our belief system actually colors our understanding of reality. My understanding of reality is skewed at this moment because I'm wearing these goofy yellow lensed glasses, see. And our worldview is incredibly important, see. Because it determines the very way we interpret, the very way we evaluate any event, any experience in our life, and all of the events and experiences all in the world around us. And see, choosing the wrong pair of glasses, it's not like a small thing. Getting this worldview deal wrong is a big deal. Because wearing a wrong pair of worldview glasses can actually lead to a plight that is worse than blindness. It can leave us thinking, oh, I am seeing clearly, when in reality, our view of the world in reality is quite distorted, see? And if we ever hope to become spiritual champions, we need a holistic worldview, not just a worldview that speaks to a couple of things, but a worldview that speaks to everything in life. A worldview that speaks to theology and philosophy and ethics and biology and psychology and sociology and law and politics and economics and history. A holistic worldview actually helps us answer some very important questions in this life. Questions like, is there a God and what is he like? Questions like, what are the nature and the origin of the universe? Questions like, what is the nature and origin of humankind? How did we come to be? Where did we come from? What happens to humankind after death? Is this all there is? Do we just live and die and then blink? That's it. Where does knowledge come from? What is the basis of ethics and morality? What is the meaning of all of human history? A holistic worldview that's rooted and founded in God's Word speaks to every single one of those questions. And if we hope to become spiritual champions, we will hold to just such a holistic worldview that answers those questions and answers them based with answers that are based and founded on scriptural principles, because scripture is true, because scripture is significant, because scripture carries weight, and violating the principles of scripture has a consequence and consequences. Now, today's the day where we celebrate uh, this thing called Palm Sunday, right? Lots of you probably knew that it's Palm Sunday. The week before Easter is this day that we commemorate Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He rode into town right before the week of the Passover celebration. He rode into town, why? To be crucified, right? He rode into town to die. And I want us to look at this whole worldview piece through the events that were surrounding Jesus, quote, triumphal entry might be the heading in your Bible above this text, and how a biblical worldview played into the events surrounding Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. And I want to set up the stage, and I want to do it this way. That day, that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode toward Jerusalem on that donkey, there was a general understanding amongst almost all of Jewish culture that a regime change was about to take place that a regime change was about to unfold. This was the day, see, that God's people had been hoping and praying for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had lived lots and large segments of their lives under the boot of Rome, and they were tired of it. They had been reduced, the nation of Israel, to nothing more than a puppet state, really. They had no king, see, because the Romans wouldn't let them have a king. They could still managed to appoint a high priest, but the Romans said, we get to approve who your high priest is. And just to make sure that your high priest doesn't ever get any ideas about leading a revolt or creating a Jewish state or anything such as that, we're gonna keep all of your ceremonial robes for your high priests locked up. Yeah, you can pull them out for Passover and other high holy days, but they're under lock and key. You only get them on certain occasions when we decide you get them. And you only get them if you behave yourself. They were pressing the Israelite nation into their mold. They were conforming them to who they wanted them to be. And just the the Romans said, just in case any of your people who are coming to the temple get any crazy ideas about rebellion or uprising or insurgency, we went ahead and we built this giant fortress right onto the side of the temple. Picture that. The temple of the Most High God. And here come the pagan Roman nation, and they attach... This fortress to the side of the temple of God, their most precious building, the structure that means all of the world to the Israelite people. And so that the temple of the most high God then fell under the long shadow of the Roman fortress. And the Romans, they reminded the Jews, when you and when your friends and when your family, whenever Jews pilgrim pilgrimage to Jerusalem, we want you to know, don't get out of hand. Don't get out of hand. Just look up and look around and you'll notice the Roman soldiers with spear tips gleaming in the sun, 600 soldiers on duty around that temple at any one time, keeping the Israelite nation under the oppressive boot of the Roman Empire And those soldiers looked on and those soldiers looked down all around the temple just to make sure that nobody ever got any crazy ideas about trying to throw the Romans out, trying to uprise, trying to develop an insurgency against the Roman Empire. And the Jews, they were oppressed, weren't they? But despite the oppression and this crippling political power, the Jews, they never once gave up hope. They never once gave up hope. All of the prophecies from thousands of years prior foretold that one day a savior would come, a king would ride into Jerusalem one day and would deliver God's people from the unspeakable evils of these godly oppressors. They knew what the prophets had told. And so when Jesus rode into town that first Palm Sunday, it was finally happening. It was finally happening. And just imagine the anticipation and the excitement for all of those hundreds of thousands of Jews who would have been gathered. And just like the rabbis had foretold, it happened during Passover. The Messiah would come, that he would judge the ungodly. And it was Passover week. And these Jews were gathered from all around the world, and they begin to file out into the streets. And a victory parade begins to form out at the edge of the city, This about two mile long parade that goes right to the heart of Jerusalem and people, momentum was building. People were turning to each other and saying, this prophet from Nazareth, this one they call Jesus, he's the one, he's the one, he's got to be the one. He just healed these two people that were blind. That is incredible. No one but the Messiah would be able to pull that off. And Jesus rode down the steep hill from the Mount of Olives and people were waving and people were shouting, and he's riding on this small donkey colt, probably so small that his feet were dragging on the ground or very close to dragging on the ground, just like the prophets had foretold hundreds and thousands of years prior. And he came to town humbly, didn't he? He came to town incredibly humbly. The Romans, when they came to town, they rode in quite arrogantly, perched very high on their war horses, not Jesus not Jesus. He comes to town on a donkey colt, much like Solomon did when Solomon rode into Jerusalem to take up his father David's throne as king of the nation of Israel. And just like the prophets had foretold, Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives, and the people there overwhelmed with joy. And they begin to cry out to Jesus, Jesus must be the one He's the new king of Israel. Praise God, Hosanna. And then some people said, quick, hurry, take off your coat, lay it down on the road in front of him. Quick, run and cut off those palm fronds off of the trees and lay those down across the road and wave them. Let's roll out the red carpet, the people said. And Jesus approached closer and closer and the people began to yell louder and louder, bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise the new Son of David. Blessed is the King of Israel. All of the kings who had traveled so incredibly far for this Passover are singing their ancient Passover song out loud blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, repeating it over and over, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowd just can't wait. It's almost palpable, their enthusiasm. They can't wait to see what happens when Jesus finally rides into the city of Jerusalem proper. And they think to themselves, finally, the Messiah will judge the ungodly. And they're sort of waving their finger at the Romans. Finally, he will remove these pagan Romans from power. Finally, he will ride right up to the fortress that the Romans dared to build onto the side of our beloved temple, and he will make his way right into their fortress, straight to the very heart of the ungodly, and he will drive them out. Our glorious temple will finally be free and cleansed from these ungodly occupiers, right? That's the image that they had in their head. But that isn't quite what happened, is it? Not at all what happened as a matter of fact. Because see, all of the Jews who were gathered on that day, they had another set of worldview lenses on. And it wasn't God's set of worldview lenses. Instead, it was a set of worldview lenses that they had crafted for themselves because they had an agenda, they had a bent, they had a desire, they knew what they wanted, And it sure looked to them like Jesus was filling the bill of what they wanted. Not what God was unfolding. And all of this excitement that was welling up in the crowd about who Jesus was. Jesus being the Messiah. Jesus being the new king of Israel. It was really very simply just the opening round in the struggle over all of the differing and competing views about the nature of the Messiah. And what his role would be. All of those people who were so incredibly hyped up about Christ as the Messiah, all of those people who were so excited about Jesus, the new King of Israel, they were just spouting the prevailing orthodoxy of the day, the, quote, conventional wisdom of the day. Because they had a worldview lens on, they had worldview glasses on that told them that the Messiah was coming back, and when he came back, he would reinstate and he would re- rehabilitate Israel as a temple state in the image, of the, king, the image of the kingdom of their first Israel's father, King David, see. They anticipated that the Messiah, when he came, would sit on David's throne and would cause Israel to be once again a militaristically mighty nation, ruled from the headquarters at Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And things would be as they once were under the Israelites' favorite king, King David, and we think about this Palm Sunday scene a lot of times. All of these people, maybe we see it reenacted in a video or something, and we see all these people who are laying down their coats and their palm fronds, laying them out in front of Jesus, who's riding on this donkey colt. And we try to make that scene into something that it never was, see. We kind of sort of make it into this, oh, isn't that special kind of, oh, oh, it's so special, Right? Look at how the people are filing out to greet Jesus as he comes to town. He's riding on the back of this little donkey, cold on his way to die in just a few short days. But we read that into the scene, see? Because that's not at all what's going on there. No one there that day thought Jesus was coming to town to die. Nobody, as a matter of fact, save for Jesus himself, thought that Jesus was coming to town to die. They did not think that the Messiah was going to have to give his life for anything. They thought that he was coming to town to kick the Romans' butts, to reestablish the kingdom of David, that mighty militaristic kingdom with its headquarters in Jerusalem. But they didn't arrive at that worldview because they were holding to God's view, see, they arrived at that conclusion because it's what they wanted. It's what they were about. They were wearing a pair of worldview glasses that caused them to see reality in a skewed way, with a bent, with a desire see. They thought the kingdom of David was going to be reestablished because of the lenses they were seeing the events through. They were mad at the Romans' See. They had cause to have an agenda. They were tired of the injustices that were being rendered upon them by these ungodly occupiers. They had cause to see things the way they wanted to see them. They were out for revenge, and blood would have been just fine with them, Roman blood. But see, their worldview was anything but biblical, see, And some of us, especially those of us who are quite young, we often think this. We're like, so what's the big deal if I don't have a biblical worldview? Who really cares if I don't hold to a biblical worldview? It's not that big a deal. What's the problem if I see things one way and God unfolds things another way? So what? Why does it matter? The answer to that question is that there is an incredibly high cost to having a worldview that isn't based on God's word and its principles. It's expensive to live life without a biblical worldview. Look at James 1.6. It speaks to the cost. A person with a divided loyalty is as unsettled as the wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. A person who wears the wrong set of worldview glasses has a divided loyalty, sometimes to God, sometimes to self, sometimes to God, sometimes to others. Sometimes to God, sometimes to public opinion. Sometimes to God, sometimes to conventional wisdom. And you see the tension, blown back and forth like a wave on the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. That, believe it or not, is a quite expensive way to live life. And a biblical worldview that shapes our decision-making process, that's rooted and that's founded in scriptural principles that are true and significant, guys, it grounds us. It grounds us. Think about a biblical worldview rooted and founded in God's word are like pylons that are driven down deep into bedrock causing us to be tied up tight not blown and tossed by the winds of opinion and peer pressure and conventional wisdom and anything else we can think about. And get this, a whatever-anything-goes kind of worldview leads to a whatever-anything-goes kind of life that is marked by a lack of focus and is marked by missed opportunities to live out one's very reason for being on the planet. We miss God's best when we have the wrong set of worldview glasses on because we see everything skewed in a skewed way. We see everything with a bent. We see everything with our opinion factored in first versus God's desire, God's will factored in first. And let me just show you, for example, how expensive this deal is, how expensive it is to have a broken, wrong, incorrect worldview by showing you what this Palm Sunday's crowd skewed worldview, where it led them. In Mark chapter, if we have got a Bible, you might turn there. This won't even be on the side screens. Mark chapter 11, verses nine and 10. We see the crowd, I told you a few moments ago, was all stoked up about Jesus coming. He's the new king of Israel. He's the one who would right all of the wrongs that Rome had been perpetrating. Finally, justice would be wrought. And here's what they said as Jesus was riding in on that donkey. Praise God. This is chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. See, there's that David thing. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to reinstate the temple state. He's going to set up a mighty army and nobody will ever defeat us again. Praise God in the highest heaven, they said. And that transliteration of what they're saying there in verse 9 and 10 is this word hosanna. And you've all heard this word hosanna, at least for the most part. And that word Hosanna literally means save now. Just get that in your head. Hosanna equals save now. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that word Hosanna uh, used when referring to kings and important dignitaries and so on. It's a word of acclamation and greeting. This is an important person. Save now, Hosanna. And think about Hosanna. It's not a cry for help, okay? Sometimes we would... Uh, cry out save now maybe in reference to somebody who's floating down a river and we're crying out for somebody to do something about it save now save and we're trying to marshal forces to go do something about not letting something bad continue to happen to that person but this Hosanna save now deal is not a cry for help it's a cry of preservation for one who is very very important and this is what they're saying to Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey save him Preserve him. Don't let anything bad happen to him. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But this is incredibly ironic, isn't it? The crowd is shouting out, please don't let anything bad happen to him. Save him. This one is so important, we can't afford to let anything cause him to be lost. And here's Jesus Christ. He's sitting on the back of this donkey, and he knows he's riding into town not to be saved, but instead to be killed. And no matter how emphatically Jesus had tried to communicate to the people for over three years that he must die, the worldview lenses that they had on, the worldview lenses that they chose to see the world through were skewed toward the reality that they wanted. They had a bent. And it wasn't God's bent. They were not seeing the reality that God himself was unfolding. They were seeing reality the way they wanted to see Reality And their broken world view was not based on God's word, was not based on God's principles. And it took them from this very special occasion of shouting, Hosanna, save now, preserve this one on Palm Sunday to look at Mark 15, 9 to 13. Just flip over. Mark 15 9 to 13. And here's what Pilate says. Would you like me, he's speaking to the crowd, would you like me to release the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. For he realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And look at verse 13. Mark 15, 13. They shouted back, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. And so here you see the slide from Hosanna, save now, preserve this one, just on Sunday to crucify him the following Friday. And this is important to note because all those are the same people. They're all the exact same people people the same people who were there on Sunday welcoming the king of the Jews who thought that Jesus would set them free from Roman tyranny or the same people who were there in that crowd in front of Pilate on that Friday crying out for Jesus crucifixion kill him and they were so committed to a broken incorrect unbiblical worldview that they clamored for Pilate to release this rebel named Barabbas instead of Jesus because by this point in the week they've got it figured out Jesus is not the revolutionary they wanted Jesus is not the revolutionary that they thought that he was going to be. Jesus is not going to be the one who's going to rule from David's throne and restore Israel's temple state and military might. And Barabbas the rebel, in their eyes, through a broken worldview lens, was a more true, quote, insurgent in their eyes. He was making a lot more dust than Jesus was toward overthrowing the Roman occupiers. And their broken worldview led them to call for the release of, really, Barabbas was a counterfeit revolutionary. He wasn't the one. He wasn't the Messiah. Their broken worldview led them to call out for his, Barabbas' release, instead of the release of the one who was truly intending to save them, eternally save them, not just from the Roman oppressors, but from a life spent separated from God forever. Forever. Guys, if we ever want to be spiritual champions, we must set about to constructing a biblical worldview. We must set about to putting on the correct set of worldview glasses. Not the ones that cause you to see yellow and muddy, just a blur. But the ones that help you see God's will clearly. God's heart clearly. And so if we're going to do that, I want to give you four points that help you build a biblical worldview. These are on your notes page. Number one, we must build our worldview on the solid foundation of God's word and his principles and his truth. Nothing else will cut it. Nothing else will cut it. Nothing else will be as solid a foundation, as right a foundation as God's word will be. Which means, really guys, we must become people of the text, not people of feelings, not people of just our opinion. We must become people of the text, see? And look at what Psalm 119 verse 11 says about becoming people of the text. Here's what it says we must do with the text. If we hope for it to be our foundation, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We gotta tuck God's word away in our heart. We gotta know it, we gotta memorize it, and we gotta pull it out, and we gotta leverage it at pivotal moments if we hope to have a biblical worldview because there's stuff going on around us every single day that's like crazy stuff. And we got to have our God's worldview lenses on so we can interpret it and analyze it and call it for what it is, not just what we want it to be, not just what we think it is, but what God really thinks it is. That's our foundation, the text. We must become people of the text. Point two, as we're constructing this biblical worldview, I just wanna warn you that our focus will often be construed as being quite narrow, right? It's just gonna be quite narrow and people are gonna tell us that. As we're in the process of constructing and living out a biblical worldview, we might hear people say, ah, you, you're always just coming back to the text, you're always just coming back to the Bible, you're always referencing God's plan or God's principles or God's truth and, well, you're right, because they matter, because they're true, they're right, and they matter. People accuse Jesus Christ of being quite narrow. They said, you're, you're just simply about your Father's will. And he's like, uh-huh, I am. Look at what he said in John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven to what? To do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. He wasn't just trying to do what he wanted to do. He wasn't just living out of what his opinions and feelings and emotions in the moment. He was on a mission from God himself, and so are we, see. We're not just making up a worldview as we go along. We're inviting God to form his in us. And so our focus will often be construed as being quite narrow because we're withdrawing, we're pulling away, we're spending time with God so that we can form God's perspective on matters. Jesus pulled away all the time so that he could spend time with God, so that God could infuse his life and his will and his heart more and more into Jesus. He's our example in this. And get this, developing a biblical worldview requires that our focus vigilantly remain upon the one we follow, Jesus Christ. We're rooted and founded in Jesus Christ. We're his followers after all. We're followers of the way of Jesus Christ. Third point, we've got to ask ourselves as we're forming a biblical worldview, who and what is our filter? who and what is our filter, and the Bible has to become our primary filter, see. We all have a grid, we all have a filter, we all have lenses that we see stuff through, but developing a biblical worldview necessitates that we filter all of that through scriptural principles, principles that reflect the very nature of God himself, not just God's laws, but the very nature of God himself. We're not just following the rules, see, Rather, the filter is this foundational bedrock principle and commitment to love and follow God in everything that we do. We're not people with divided loyalty. We're God's people, and we're out to please God and do his will, see? Jesus said it this way in Matthew 22, 36 and 37. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's all of you, all in with Jesus. Not flipping the switch off and on and like, yeah, I'll filter some stuff through God's word and through God's worldview, and I'll filter some other stuff through this broken set of worldview lenses that I kind of like because they kind of have my bent to them. That's not the way it works. We're all in one way or the other. No divided loyalty. And then where the rubber meets the road in this biblical worldview deal, it's this. Point four and the final point will land here. By faith, we actually demonstrate that an authentic biblical worldview is backed up by our actions. See, this isn't just talk, or at least it shouldn't just be talk, but we're backing it up by what we're doing And even by what we're doing when we think that nobody else is looking, right? Jesus asks a fantastic question. It's quite probing, quite piercing in Luke 6, verse 46. Check this out. Jesus asks, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? In other words, why call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ if you're just going to ignore what he invites and asks and calls us to do? Well, like, like, why, why bother? We've got to think about that, don't we? Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? And sometimes we don't do what Jesus says because we're afraid it will disappoint or we're afraid that it will let someone down or we're afraid of what somebody will think about us if we, if we do. And I want you to know that Jesus had very little no, as a matter of fact, no anxiety whatsoever about the consequences of living out a biblical worldview. None whatsoever, because he knew at the end of the day that the truth, capital T, would win out, and that as long as his choices honored and pleased God, that they would be the right choices, no matter what anybody thought, no matter what anybody said. He was out to please God, not man, not anyone else, not self. Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? And here's where this all lands eventually. As your biblical worldview forms up more and more and more in you, as you throw away the broken worldview lenses that lots of us see the world through presently, it's going to cause us to put some things down that are completely incongruent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's going to cause us to put some things down that are dividing our loyalty Some addiction that we've been clinging to, it feels good, we like it a whole bunch. It really fills us up in a certain kind of way, but really at the end of the day, it just leaves us empty. A biblical worldview will actually cause and compel you just to say, I've had enough. I've had enough of that addiction deal. I'm putting it down. I have to put it down. Because I say on one hand, Jesus is my Lord and boss and Savior and friend and life manager, and then on the other hand, I'm keeping on to this sinful thing And they're incongruent. I've got to put it down. Once and for all, I've got to put it down. And the consequences of putting some things down might be quite high. The cost might be quite high. But get this, the price, it's worth the price. It's absolutely worth the price. The world says that you meet someone of the opposite sex and then, well, you just move in together, right? That's what you do. You hook up and then you shack up. And when I say shack up, I don't just mean shack up, I mean shack up, right? You all know what that means. Not just living together, you're living together, right? But we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ on one hand, and we're shacking up on the other hand. They're incongruent, They, they don't fit. God's worldview lenses will compel us to say, all right, enough and putting it down and you might have to go home and you might have to have a conversation with the one that you're shacked up with and say look this doesn't fit this doesn't work this doesn't please God we call ourselves Christ followers this is dishonoring to him and you might have to put it down and that might be a very hard conversation and there might be fireworks but the fireworks are worth it because at the end the end of the day pleasing God is what matters most that's what matters most a biblical worldview will compel us to please God to honor God and to see the world the way God invites us to see it not with a bent not with our opinion not with our perspective but with God's and I just want to ask you to take your things and set them aside if you would please would you go to prayer Would you just close your eyes and bow your heads and speak to the Lord about what you're thinking about? Tell God what's on your heart and mind. You can do that now if you would. Could I ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for the next few moments? I just want to make this real sacred time, distraction-free. You and the Lord, just press in together now, if you would. And maybe as you sit here in this room today, you realize that you've been living life with this worldview that isn't based on God's truth, that isn't based on God's principles. You've had a broken set of worldview glasses on. And if God's been working in your heart in that direction, I just invite you in this time to set yourself on a course of building a biblical worldview. Now, that's not going to be like an overnight thing. You're not going to go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden have a complete and full biblical worldview. It doesn't work like that. You might employ those last four steps that we talked about over and over and over and over and over again over the course of the rest of your life, which is fantastic. And the cool thing about that is you're not doing it in your own strength. God's at that work with you. He's helping you, infusing you with his life and his strength to build that biblical worldview inside of you. And if that's you, I just invite you to transact whatever business you need to do with God around that. God, please form your worldview in me. Please help me take off these broken worldview glasses and see the world the way you want me to see it. Not the way I think I should see it. Not the way my friends see it. Not the way, quote, conventional wisdom sees it. The way you see it, God. And maybe you're here today, and all of this is entirely brand new to you. And maybe today God is tapping you on the shoulder and showing you and speaking to you that first and foremost, you've never trusted Him with your soul. You've never crossed the starting line on the journey toward becoming a spiritual champion. You've never stepped into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and allowed Him to partner with you toward becoming a spiritual champion. He wants you to know today... That he sent his son Jesus Christ to make a way for you to do just that. And if you were the last person on planet earth, he'd have done it just for you. He invites every person on planet earth to step into a relationship with him through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And when you do, you are not ever the same. In an instant, you will be forgiven. In an instant, you will be adopted into God's family. In an instant, you will be set on a course to spend all of eternity with God, starting right here and right now. And if you've never started into a relationship with Jesus Christ, perhaps this is your day. What's keeping you? And if that's the desire of your heart, I invite you just to pray a prayer that goes something like this right where you're sitting. God, thank you so much for sending your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for me to live in relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. And today I realize, God, that you are perfect and that you are holy and that the stuff I've done has separated me from you. It's not about what you did, God. It's about what I did but I believe with everything in me that your son Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And I ask you to please forgive me and please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. God, I want you to change me. God, I need you to clean my life up and set me on a course of becoming a spiritual champion. Please, God. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, there's not a bigger decision you'll ever make. It's the most weighty important decision ever. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And I'm gonna ask you to do that with me right now. I want you to know that nobody's going to embarrass you, nobody's looking around, it's just me. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to lift your hand, make eye contact with me, just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes, I stepped into a relationship. You over there, ma'am, I see you. And you right there, buddy, I see you. Way to go. And you right there, both of you. Right now, God is changing you and he's making you new. He's taking off your broken worldview glasses and he's setting you on a whole new course. New worldview, starting right here, right now. Are there any others? i not to miss anybody too big a deal. God, we're just immensely grateful that you didn't just turn us loose on the planet to try to have to figure it all out, to try to make sense of all this craziness that we see day in and day out, God, but that you desire to set your worldview lenses on our faces so that we can see Reality the way you want us to see reality. Will you help us be about that, please? Help us be entirely committed to your worldview being formed more and more in us, day by day by day. It's not an, in an instant thing. It's a process. It's a developing process, God. But it starts with stripping off broken worldviews. So take us there. Help us put them down and help us desire and hunger and thirst after seeing things your way, God. Because your way is true, your way is right. We sure love you and we're sure grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray over the folks in this room who just yielded their life to you, who just stepped into a relationship with you, that you would walk with them from this day forward, God. You would carry them along through thick and through thin And God, you would press your truth into them and cause them to desire moment by moment more and more and more of you, Father. That's what life is about, you, not us. It's about you. And we love you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And the church said, amen.